Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We've got Joe behind the desk. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa. Thanks for being with us this evening. Radiothon's not over. We've still got beautiful Radiothon vibes all around here and we're very excited to be catching up on all the people who've subscribed since we were last on air a week ago. Thank you to all the subscribers. A reminder, you can still subscribe until 5pm Wednesday, 5th of October and be in the running for a bunch of prizes but also that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get from being part of this station. We'd love to have you as one of us. We would. Join us. Join us, yes. <laughs> Joining us tonight on theme uh, will be a University of New South Wales academic who will be talking to us about private messaging apps, which is, um, yeah, really a really interesting area that we could always know more about, particularly because um, sort of the opposite of convergence is happening in messaging. We've got so many different platforms to message each other on that uh, we thought a bit of professional guidance might be good We're also going to speak to the CEO of Fishburners. If you're not aware of them because you're based in Melbourne perhaps, um, they are a tech startup community based in Sydney who've just held their first Tech for Good Awards. We're going to unpack all of that, find out what it's about, see if this is an entirely new direction for Fishburners. So that's what's on for the show tonight. Before we get to our guests, time to cover a bit of news Big acquisition by yeah. Adobe lately. Yeah, um, Adobe have acquired kind of a, a rather large competitor, Figma. What does Figma do for those who don't know? Well, I have seen it used to create um, kind of wireframes of websites, and but more so that you can put the design in so you can walk through it and really actually feel what it's going to be like while seeing what it looks like as well. I think it's a really great explanation and you can see why there were such big competitors to Adobe who are most famous for the Adobe Creative Suite. Yeah. You know, so they've got all sorts of video and photo editing things plus illustration tools from scratch, animation tools. They've really, you know, doubled down on every micro breakdown of the design capabilities. But, you know, they also moved their product to the cloud and went to a subscription basis. And, you know, a lot of people have said, gosh, that cost model is super expensive. I mean, the software was always pricey, but at least you could hold on to it and maybe not upgrade if you couldn't afford to. And since they've gone to a cloud model, you know, there's been so many people cutting their lunch with um, more scaled down offerings that are exactly what a lot of people need. And Adobe's XD is a very similar product to Figma. So it'll be interesting to to see what they do with Figma. Yeah, at the moment, you know, there's still a lot of speculation about um, how cynical this acquisition is. Adobe themselves have said that they're deeply committed to keeping Figma operating autonomously and that could make a lot of sense because they're such a successful um, product and they have a really different um, value proposition to the audience. But... uh, you know, you still do wonder, will 
an acquired product um, succeed in that environment? Will it get the same sort of love and attention and investment as it's had before? You know, um, sometimes you see uh, acquisitions get cannibalised by the bigger products in the business and that can be a risk. Um, People, I guess, always look back to Yahoo and a bunch of acquisitions they made of things like um, photo sharing platform Flickr. Yes, oh, it's a while back. And then... They, then the, they end up going back to other yeah. owners. and Yeah, they stopped you know, working on the features and it really mm. killed the growth, like stunted the growth of that platform, for example. So one to watch, there's a lot of really passionate Figma users who are a little uncertain about what the future holds now. But we'll we see. shall see. Mm. You've got some YouTube news. We do. So um, Mozilla have put out a new report which... Uh, You might know Mozilla as the privacy-focused Firefox browser makers. And they like to do research into user behaviour and, um, you know, systems behaviour on a whole range of software. And they've looked at um, data from about 23,000 volunteers using YouTube. Because there's so much chatter about the YouTube recommendation engine and how problematic it is, um... They wanted to research in particular whether active use of the dislike button would then have a knock-on effect discouraging that type of content um, into your feed. And we do know that YouTube has a really good sense of the categorization of its content into, you know, it knows what it's serving you and it does try and, you know, recommend different things and then serve you more of the same. Um, So they wanted to know if the opposite was true. Could you discourage YouTube from serving up certain things? What did uh, they find? Well, problematically, um, they've found that it it's not very good at de-recommending content by using the dislike button, despite some of the claims that, um, that the makers have, have had. So I want to unpack a few things. Um, YouTube is the second most popular website in the world. The first is Google. And an estimated 70% of the 1 billion hours viewed daily on the platform are a result of recommendations. So if you think, oh, who, who watches the recommendations anyway, it actually is a massively significant um, influencer of what content people watch and engage with. So there have been a lot of reports in the past about the algorithm maybe polarising people, um, problems of recommendations of misinformation and harmful content, and Google says it's worked really hard to fix things in this area. But, um, yeah, Mozilla went out to test what about the controls that YouTube tout that give you the power to manage what's recommended to you. And they found that people are routinely recommended videos they don't want to see and felt that the controls available were ineffective. Um, There is a browser plugin Mozilla developed called Regrets Report to see if... Um, you know, to use to create the data for this study. So that's how the 23,000 people interacted with the study through this browser plugin. And they looked at four different Google suggested controls. They looked at clicking the thumbs down dislike. They also looked at not interested and they looked at the don't recommend channel and remove from watch history. So if you're on YouTube a bit, all of those bits should sound a little bit familiar. So what's the difference between not interested and thumbs down? Is thumbs down like a publicly not interested? That's right. Thumbs down is visible at the bottom of any video that you watch. You know, you can see the thumbs up, thumbs down, how many of them there are. And it's quite similar to looking at a Twitter feed and seeing the ratio. You know, you want to look at that ratio. (laughs) 
so you get a sense of how accepted is this content before I'm even engaging with it. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. Then the not interested is, you know, a personal tick for your account. Yeah. And uh, so when people clicked um, some of these control options, the corresponding info was sent to um, sent to YouTube and data about future recommended videos were sent to Mozilla. And they also had a control group. So you can read a fair bit about the methodology. Um, so they analysed from those almost 23,000 participants, they analysed, oh, my gosh, what's that number? Like... 567 million recommended videos. So it's a huge amount of data. Um, And they reviewed 40,000 pairs of recommended videos and rated their similarity to try and unpack, um, you know, sort of what groups of content are being recommended. And it's, it's a pair in the sense that you've got the original video that you watched and then the recommended one. And if you sort of disliked something and then you've been pushed to a recommendation, has that taken effect? Um, so interesting. Anyway, we could talk about this all day, but we will not. But as a result of their findings, Mozilla is now calling on people to sign a petition asking YouTube to fix its feedback tools and put more power in the hands of its users. I just uh, feel like that would be quite uh, an important process for kind of emotional safety for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so many people are monitoring younger people's use yeah. of these tools and probably getting a bit of false comfort from, oh, it's all right, I clicked, you know, dislike or not interested or, you know, don't recommend this to me on a few things so I've cleaned up the feed and it's so easy for it to go wrong, unfortunately. Hmm. So very interesting and good work, Mozilla, for doing that sort of research. Um, it just sounds like a massive undertaking. Yeah, really fascinating. Huge. Yeah. And um, you've got some... Uh unexpected news about the iPhone. Yeah, yeah. So I don't keep up with all the phone announcements. Who can and who can afford to keep up with, you know, the latest phones and what have you? Um, More power to you if you do, but um, I'm not that interested in that. But what I am interested is in the fixing movement and our ability to repair and improve and break down our tech. Um, And to whatever extent that's possible, you know, I think that that trend should really be encouraged. One place Agreed. that really encourages that, yeah, exactly. One place that really encourages it is the iFixit group. Um, they publish a whole bunch of uh, information about how to fix your own devices and they're a community. So they encourage people, you know, to crowdsource this sort of stuff and, and put things up there and say, oh, I need help fixing this. Has anyone else done it? And they also do teardowns in a really constructive way. So they will take a piece of tech that's quite new and they'll invest in breaking it apart in a way that's probably not repairable just to understand all the components that are going into these gadgets that we we live by and to do a bit of analysis on how easy they might be to fix and how far you can take something apart and then keep putting it back together again and and then you know, when do you go too far and what sort of components are in here and how expensive are they and how glued together or not glued together are they? So how modular is it? And they've reported that um, Apple has done significant redesign within the iPhone for the iPhone 14. And they say this is fantastic, that uh, the changes are such that it will make it much easier to fix, um, which is really great to see people heading in the right direction there. So you can check out the iPhone 14 teardown video from iFixit. 
And one of the improvements is removable back glass. So um, rather than, you know, having all this glue and stuff involved and having it really fixed, um, they can use a heating mat, a suction handle and an opening pick. Now, just because these experts can do it, you know, you still... We're not talking about it's super easy for anyone to pull apart. You've got to have the right tools. You've got to have the right technique. You've got to know what you're doing. Um, But the brilliant thing about them is that they share all that information. And so if you do want to do these things in a safe way, they really empower you. Just Um, the the fact that you could take it into a repair place to have more components or or modules within it fixed than you could previously is is good news. Exactly. Along with the um, cable standards. Yeah. that have um, uh, charger standards that have come into effect as well. Yeah, exactly. So they go into tremendous detail, you know, how many screws there are and what have you and when did the last backing get introduced and how painful it was and now how much they've improved that. And that goes to show, like, it must have been a huge problem for Apple as well. <coughs> oh, excuse me, failure to reach cough button. Ah, it happens. It certainly does. Um Yeah, so last year Apple lowered the price to repair the glass backing on the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13, and you can see how it's in their interest to fix the repairability. So that's another little bit of good tech news for you this week. Love good news. Yeah. I think we should um, maybe go to a bit of a break, give any really passionate listeners some time to subscribe to Triple R, rrr.org.au. It really is. You can get in there. rrr.org.au. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Cybersecurity expert Dr Arash Shagagi from Uni of New South Wales School of Computer Science and Engineering and the Institute for Cybersecurity joins us tonight to discuss private messaging apps. Welcome, Arash. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I'm just going to wait and get your volume up so I can hear you. Can you hear me well? Yeah, that's better. Thank you so much. Um, Lovely to speak with you. Uh, It's... It's a topic that I think um, those of us who are interested in computers often get asked by family and friends, which is what uh, private messaging systems are you using and why? And a while back, it looks like people got the idea that their messaging systems should be encrypted. Even Facebook Messenger started talking about their encryption. Um, How safe are our messages? Well, generally, um, most platforms that we use nowadays, they have... uh, good encryption and good implementation of security features. Uh, we just need to make sure that we follow some basic uh, hygiene uh, when, when it comes to these apps and making sure uh, about certain checklists. It's, it's, um, but otherwise, uh, I think uh, we are, most of the well-known services are relatively uh, reliable. And what would you classify as the most popular messaging apps? What should be on people's radars as some of their options? Uh, obviously, those that most of us uh, have used or um, for for work or for personal lives, like uh, uh, those provided by Meta, like WhatsApp or uh, Facebook Messenger, um, Telegram, Signal. So they are popular platforms. Um, um, so yeah. 
And what about the native messaging capabilities on phones? I mean, we saw people move away from SMS and MMS, presumably because of the cost. But how secure are those techniques maybe compared to popular messaging apps? Okay, so I think perhaps for your audience and in general, when we are thinking about uh, moving from these text messaging to these encrypted uh, um, sort of private messaging platforms that provide encryption, we need to sort of remind ourselves of some of the basics, uh, essentially what's encryption, what's decryption. So if I may, I would yeah. just like to share a few words about this um, that might be of interest. So essentially the internet that we use is an open and public system. So essentially we're relying on a network of networks that we don't have the control over. So it's like uh, when you're sending a message, sending an email, your message and your data is, ex- um, is going to a network of networks all across across the world. And um, the, even the service provider may not have a very clear sort of uh, control on who is accessing your information al- along the route. So, um, and, and if you consider these and the fact that we are re- relying on so much uh, exchange of private information over this public platform, then you wonder essentially, first of all, how you how we are achieving that. So, what's what's enabling uh, that uh, you know sharing my pri- uh, credit card information, my private uh, conversations over these platforms? So that's essentially happening through encryption. Now, encryption is essentially a process uh, where you know through using some um, algorithms and some mathematics, we essentially scramble or change a message to hide uh, the original text. So, and, and then there is also a reverse process where you essentially unscramble this uh, scrambled message at the destination to, see, um, to sort of uh, make it readable again by humans. Now, the whole idea is actually very simple, as complicated as the start may sound, and it has been around for centuries. So, for example, um, Julius Caesar, uh, which was a Roman general, and it goes back um, so uh, to, to that time, um, uh, actually invented uh, perhaps the first cipher or first in- encryption so he wanted to send commands to his army, and he was writing those on a piece of paper. And he didn't have WhatsApp to send it on email. So, uh, <laughs> so he had to make sure whoever is sort of getting these uh, papers and passing them along uh, is not able to make sense of them. So he came up with a very sim- simple idea. Um, so he essentially um, used a simple sort of algorithm. So he substituted each letter in the original message, like H, with a, uh, with a letter, uh, a certain num- number of steps down the alphabet. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? For example, if you have, as I mentioned, H, and you want to say hello, so you move each um, le- letter, uh, five ste- for example, five steps down. Yeah. So you would, for example, have M. Right, so your hello would become M J Q Q T. So the, the person who is essentially looking at that cannot make sense of it. And that number five, which is something you know because that's what you thought about, so you would be moving each alphabet, each each character five steps down, is known as a key. So it, that's essentially the secret password to unlock your message. And, it, and it's something you as the sender and the receiver would know about and you would agree before sending that message. So this is really the foundation of every um, sort, of, uh, uh, me, um, sort of message exchange or information exchange over Internet and this public uh, system. 
I love it. It's been a while since I've heard Caesar Cipher unpacked, but um, I never get sick of it because it is. It's such a beautiful explainer for, um, you know, private key encryption. Um, so I think people get that, but um, I do wonder, you know, the way that we're using these messaging capabilities um, that are separate to SMS, um, they're all travelling through the internet in various various ways. And um, I wonder what's the difference between how SMS travels and how secure that might be. So essentially that's um, when you send an uh, SMS, your, um, your message is sent actually as a plain text to, to through uh, with the help of the service provider, mm. so which is your telecom company. So mm -hmm. that can easily be uh, intercepted by anyone that's essentially who has access, including the service provider to, through your messages or uh, whatever sort of format there may be. But when we move to these um, uh, sort of messaging apps, uh, um, they um, so there are two types of encryption involved uh, with these apps. So some of them are end-to-end -end encryption, and some of them are just regular encryption, um, let's say. So the, with the end-to-end -end encryption and what, what makes it distinct and uh, sort of a better choice for privacy and security, only you as the sender and the receiver would be able to uh, see the content. So even the service provider like Facebook or Meta or um, um, Signal or whatever platform you're using, they won't be able to um, make sense of the content that you're transmitting. So they will be just managing the, the delivery of your message, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't know about the content. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, there are some platforms that their default, like Telegram, their default settings, uh, although they have the option for end-to-end -end encryption, their default settings uh, um, sort of does not implement end-to-end -end encryption. So what does that mean is that your communication is encrypted between you and Telegram server, and again, from Telegram server to the destination, mm. your friend or your colleague. But Telegram, uh, as a service provider, will be able to see your content in clear uh, format. So it's not uh, hidden to them. Yes. And this is, I guess, why we get those telecommunication providers uh, reports every year now on how many warrants or other requests for information they've had and that they've served up data on. Exactly, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, um, you know, with these sort of, with these requests for data, with people rapidly moving from SMS type messaging to all these different messaging platforms, what sort of pressure have um, those messaging platforms been seeing in terms of requests for data and requests to, to get into the content of these messages from, say, law enforcement type bodies? Look, in general, I think first we need to clarify for uh, for anyone listening is that when you move to end-to-end -end encryption, uh, when are my messages are only visible to, to, to the intended uh, recipient, what happens is that the moderating of this content becomes uh, very difficult. So that means as the service provider doesn't have access, it's the same for, um, you know, the police or um, whoever wants to sort of or sometimes need to have access, for example, to um, prevent criminal incidents or or even after the fact. So when there have been terrorist attacks, to actually getting more information about what was going on. Mm. So 
Um, that's essentially where the complication and the argument begins. So if we are moving to these end-to-end encryption, what should we do for, for moderating the content? And there have been reports and leaks where even in U.S., uh, the, the FBI has had difficulty, even with a subpoena, to, to actually get have, have access because the technology itself doesn't allow that sort of access to, to the information. So this has been uh, a point of debate in Australia and overseas. There are arguments in favor of essentially implementing backdoors into the in- encryption. So if you have the legal sort of uh, uh, process, uh, you, have gone, you have gone through the legal process and there is a, a sort of uh, a legitimate need to uh, moderate content, that access should be granted. Um, but uh, from a security sort of uh, expert or security engineering perspective, uh, we say. So essentially, implementing a backdoor is actually not a good idea because you're messing with the technology that we rely on um, for for many things. And when you implement that backdoor, there is no guarantee that it will not be also found, um, you know, used or uh, found out about by uh, essentially the hackers or the adversaries. So, oh, agreed. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it- that's really the point of discussion here. Mm, that's right. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And I think we've had a few a few privacy advocates on the show talk about that as well. Um, some people who who know a little bit about um, cybersecurity talk about how end to end attacks might be vulnerable to man in the middle attacks. And for a lot of our audience, they wouldn't know what that was. Could you tell us a bit about man in the middle attacks and, and whether private messaging apps um, might be vulnerable to that sort of attack? And if so, what that might look like? So uh, essentially, man in the middle attack, um, it's, it's really, I mean, in theory, it, it can happen, uh, especially if you don't use end-to-end encryption. If, if you use end-to-end encryption under certain scenarios, it's still possible. And, and, and that's actually one of the reasons we have been looking at um, some of the... So the end-to-end encryption, as I mentioned, so there are different protocols that implement end-to-end encryption, and there are some that are actually better in implementing end-to-end encryption, uh, like, for example, the one that's being used by Signal. So Signal um, Signal's sort of implementation allows to achieve what we call um, in, in from in crypto world as forward secrecy or perfect forward uh, secrecy. Mm. What what happens with that is that even if uh, sort of you monitor messages that are being exchanged over time and you successfully implement um, that uh, man in the, man in the middle attack. Uh, you would still not be able to access the previous conversations or previous messages that have been sent Mm -hmm. just because the keys used for the communication are are constantly sort of changing. Uh, There is a sort of, for those who might be more enthusiastic and um, uh, like a little bit of math, uh, Diffie-Hellman protocol Mm -hmm. and and, and, um, sort of uh, that, that allows us to achieve this uh, forward secrecy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so but with, with in those cases, like Signal, we, we can achieve that through, through that protocol. Uh, but there are um, 
But these are, again, sort of very specific details that I'm not sure. Yeah, these are very edge cases. Yeah, no, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's clear that you're uh, very good at explaining some complex ideas in, in really um, nice and easy to understand ways. Uh, and my book club's going to be very reassured about using Signal to share our you know personal thoughts about it, these books. <laughs> um, we've been speaking to Dr Arash Shagagi from the Uni of New South Wales School of Computer Science and Engineering. Clearly there's some excellent things going on in your faculty. Thanks so much for speaking to us about private messaging apps tonight. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Triple R. You're with Bite Into It with Joe and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us tonight. Also with us tonight is the Fishburners CEO, Alan Jones. He's joined us to tell us a bit about some of the exciting things Fishburners have been doing up in Sydney lately. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hey, Tim. Thanks very much for having me on. And hi, Melbourne. It's great to have you and to hear that uh, infamous radio voice of yours. <laughs> so I'm not really quite like the other Alan Jones. Uh, no, <laughs> and that's, no, that's very reassuring, I've got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we don't see you either way on many things. So, Alan, could you tell us a bit about the Fishburner startup community? I believe you've been going for about 11 years now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Fishburners was a is a registered charity and not for profit that was uh, co-founded by uh, a couple of guys who did pretty well in the early days of tech startups. A couple of Aussies and uh, uh, an Aussie and a Kiwi actually. Mike Casey was one of the co-founders of, a, of an ed tech startup called um, uh, 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 <laughs> Grad <laughs> Connection. Sorry, Grad Connection. And, and Pete Davison um, was a very early uh, Australian tech investor who happened to uh, place uh, a small bet that worked out very well for him because he was a very early investor in PayPal. Ah, nice one. Two of them came back from Silicon Valley and, and thought, you know what, it, it shouldn't be this hard to be uh, um, a tech startup founder in Australia. So they set Fishburners up as a, as, as a place to help people at the very early stages working on their ideas and maybe trying to, to find a team and a co-founder and maybe get some investors on board. So since 2011, Fishburners has, has been helping people do that. The weird name is um, is based on, on uh, the name of one of the ships in the first fleet, Oh, I'm so fish glad you unpacked that because. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Fishburn had all you know, all the livestock and the grain and the timber and the tools that you needed to create a first colony. And I thought that was you know a nice analogy for helping startups get going in Australia. That is very sweet. All right, that's great. Hey, so how long have you been involved, Alan? And um, and can you can you tell us a bit about how Fishburners has been changing since it started? Yeah, sure. So I, I uh, made the switch from actually from from journalism and PR to um, to tech startups back in, in 1995. I went to work for, first of all, Microsoft and then for Yahoo. I was an early Yahoo employee. For about the last decade, I've been angel investing in other people's tech startups and working with accelerator programs. So I'm just Fishburner's interim CEO um, for, for the next few months, just helping out while they recruit a new permanent CEO. But I've been involved with the Fishburner's community since early days. I've been, a, um, I've been renting a desk from them. I've been a, investing in some of the sites that come through Fishburners, and so it's, it's my opportunity to give back. Um, some of the cool things that Fishburners do um, are, are good you know, for the Australian economy. Others are, are for people who aspire to be a startup entrepreneur one day. And uh, sometimes we get to, to mix the two up. So last week we had a thing called the Tech for Good Awards 
This made us so excited to hear about because um, not only are we excited every time we hear about people having really um, socially aware and environmentally aware and, you know, all the ESG areas, um, companies starting up, but just to see people rewarded for that and encouraged in their endeavours in this space, there's not enough of it going on. So tell us about the Tech for Good Awards. How have you, how have you structured this? This is your inaugural awards that's just happened. Yeah, that's right. Uh, hopefully um, it'll be the first of many to come. But um, you, you might have heard of the Sustainable Development Goals that the United Nations um, came yes. up with a few years ago to give yes. us all something to focus on. Um, and so we chose seven of the Sustainable Development Goal categories and we invited startups who uh, felt that they were addressing some of those Sustainable Development Goals in what they were doing with their startup. We invited them to apply to have a chance to, to get some uh, awareness and, and exposure and publicity, but also to um, have a chance at winning a, a $5,000 cash prize. So we had um, seven categories, and they were social impact, climate action, better health and well-being, um, a female founder award, a sustainability award, a sustainable product award, a diversity and inclusion award, um, and then we had a People's Choice Award for the people who were there on the night and also an overall excellence award. Um, so um, that was that was really quite a bit of money. Um, so five grand in each of those categories plus another five for overall excellence and another five for uh, People's Choice Award. Um, so we had more than 250 startups apply, um, which was which was really great. And and you know I confirmed that you know 248 out of 249 of those applications we felt did um, did satisfy our, our need that they address one of the sustainable de- um, uh, development goals. Uh, I was lucky enough to be one of the judges that reviewed all of the applications, and um, and it's pretty inspiring work because we saw you know startups working on 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 uh, addressing issues of, of gender diversity. Um, uh, through to to healthcare um, and uh, and the environment, it was just um, a, a, a great feel all around. And I thought I might tell you about a couple of the, of the winners if I might. Please do, really yeah. For us. So the, um, the 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 overall winner of the overall excellence award, but also the uh, winner of the better health and well-being award, is a, is a startup called Neuroflux. Neuroflux comes out of um, a deep um, tech. It's it's working on um, a little headset that you put on somebody when they're admitted to a hospital immediately after having had a stroke. So obviously having a stroke is not a great thing, but there's a very real risk after you've had one stroke that you might have another one in the next couple of hours. And that makes a really big difference. And, and uh, healthcare workers um, working to keep you alive and minimize the damage need to know if that happens right away. And the way that I do that right now is terribly manual. You have to have you know, a trained nurse um, standing by watching for the sorts of symptoms that a stroke betray. So the, the Neuroflux headset sits on that patient's head, which, which frees up a nurse to go and do other important life-saving work. And, and that headset looks for the early signs of an onset of a stroke so that, so that doctors and nurses can come to your aid um, more, more quickly and, and uh, resolve that. So a couple of young um, uh, co-founders there um, working really hard on the solution, and, and it's already something that's in, in early research and testing in Australian hospitals. That's very exciting. And I think, you know, it's so easy for people to understand too, but um, it can be hard to, to know how do people start getting, you know, investment in a little idea like this when they think that the medical industry is so codified and might be hard to break into. Totally. 
Totally. Another really um, impactful startup from the awards um, is a, is a Queensland-based uh, startup called Homable. And Homable works with people who are, who are living with a disability um, that, that restricts their, their range of motion, their, their ability to, to hold and, and to use um, objects and devices. And that means that they need to rely on carers a lot of the time. Um, so, and, and that also means that in their home, they, they need to have their home adapted so that they can you know, get basic things done. And, and these days there are lots of, you know, smart home devices that, that in theory allow somebody to turn lights on and off or up and down or raise and lower the blinds on the window, um, you know, see who's at the door and so on. But the problem with all of those technologies is that they can be really hard to actually um, connect up and then also really work for, for somebody. So um, one of the humble case studies that they presented at the awards was it was um, a lovely guy who's, who's a wheelchair bound and when he hasn't doesn't have a camera present in the room. He has a smart control for, for his blinds, but the smart control only makes the blinds go all the way up or all the way down. There's, there's nothing for, for part way, right? So the oh, we need another user story. And, yeah, yeah, they're able to come in and, and, and develop a, you know, a much smarter solution using existing technologies just with some, some clever consulting and some experience of the solutions. So there are so many Australians um, living today you know, with a disability that can benefit from the solution like Humbleballs. That's excellent. And, you know, and if you solve the problem of stitching up these technologies and making them a bit more plug and play, that's also a solution that so many other people can benefit from. Totally, totally. And then some of them are, are, are you know, uh, are using uh, technology for good, but the actual product or the service uh, that comes out of it, you know, doesn't have any technology in it. And a great example of that is a startup called Compassion Creamery. And, and, and they are making a, um, a, a better cheese uh, for the world uh, using uh, oat milk. So you know, cheeses need to be made with, with, with products um, you know, that, that are difficult to certify as vegan-friendly um, because in various ways, I won't go into the details, but mm-hmm. you know, you've, you've got to squeeze the milk out of a cow and then you've got to use some rennet. And, and hey, as a lactose intolerant person, you've got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, Compassion Creamery's products, you know, if, if you've tried, you know, non-dairy cheeses before, it's an evolving science, it's an evolving field, um, and many of the products out there in the market are a little bit disappointing when you spread them on your on your jats. Um, <laughs> Compassion Creamery's um, oat-based cheeses are, um, are pretty fantastic um, and, and taste a heck of a lot more like cheese. And oh, so, you I know, love that's it. That's something that we all enjoy without having to be tech nerds. For anyone who's uh, tuned into Baidu and at the moment, you are indeed still with our program, despite the fact that we've uh, diverted onto onto uh, sort of cheese alternatives. But it really is it really is fascinating, you know, the breadth of of products and solutions that can exist, sort of you know related to to tech investment, and uh, it's very encouraging. Hey. Clearly, you know, you're super excited about the good that the Tech for Good Awards can do. Um, And while the cash benefits of winning are excellent, have you got other hopes for the benefits that this sort of positive attention might give a startup? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And and we had uh, about 180 people in the room on the night from from all, you know, different walks of life and the tech startup community. Some of the people in that room um, were, you know, potential customers of some of these technologies. Um, So, you know, one of the winners was was, um, Floodmap, and they provide super smart, super accurate, and super fast 
uh, data on, on what's happening in, in when, when communities are experiencing a flooding event. And so that's you know something that, that local government, that emergency services, that, that state and federal governments can, can use to get a much, much better picture so that aid and, and also emergency relief can, can be provided. Um, so, you know, there, we had a, a bunch of those sorts of people in the room. And then, of course, you know, we, we live stream um, all of our events as well. And so uh, we think we had a, a few hundred more people around the country actually actually watching that event live. And so it's hard to really track what happens as a result of that. But, you know, as an angel investor myself, I know that, that you know, I, I like to talk about how I, I like to invest in lines, not dots. You know, so like if you imagine a graph and it's, it, you know, it's the company history over time and maybe it's the progress that's making towards its goals in the, in, in the, uh, in the y-axis. Um, <laughs> you know, the first time somebody pitches to me, it's, it's great to see them pitch. But what I really want to see is progress over time because, yeah. you know, that's really the, what defines a, a potential tech startup. You know, unicorns, billion-dollar companies are, are really defined by their acceleration and their rate of growth. And so when somebody, you know, pitches as a, to an investor, you know, that's great. You know, we want to see you again in a little bit of time. So mm. when, when a whole bunch of investors see a startup pitch um, at an event like the Tech for Good Awards, that's okay. That's one point on the line. Mm. And then maybe, you know, we follow up a couple of months later on and we get a second point. Um, and then maybe six to nine months from now, we, we know whether or not that looks like a, a good investment to us. Um. Alan, with so many applications, about 250 applications, I wondered what are the criteria for applying? You know, did people have to be already part of the Fishburners ecosystem in some way to be eligible to apply? No, this was uh, an open and, and, and public call for applications, so this was in no way um, a, a way to get people to apply to become a member of Fishburners. <laughs> Good to yeah, know. No, that's just, yeah, just something yeah, we, that's important we, to point out. Yeah, we, 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 had, we had some criteria when we were um, evaluating the applications, mm. which were around, you know, um, uh, do we think this startup um, can make a difference, um, addressing the sustainable development goal that, that, that they've nominated? Mm. You know, how, much, how much of the team do we think that they already have in the team? Um, how far advanced um, is, is the commercialization model or, or if it's a, a not-for-profit? You know, how sophisticated, how evolved is that? How likely is that to succeed? Um, you know, so a few more criteria like that. Um, so, you know, basically the, the, the further along people were in their journey, the better. Um, uh, you know, ideas, uh, unfortunately, are a commodity now. It's execution <laughs> on the idea that matters. But also we weren't looking at, you know, we weren't about to give uh, Canva an award, even though Canva gives its, its software away for free to, to all sorts of good causes around the world. Um, and they also um, uh, refuse, they also decline, uh, you know, uh, refuse access to their software mm. to organizations and people that I think are, aren't doing the right thing by the mm. rest of the world. But we're not going to give Canva a $5,000 award because, A, they don't really need one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, you know, the startups that are too far advanced that can't really benefit from what the tech uh, for good awards um, offers, then, yeah, we weren't going to give them an award either. Well, we are very encouraged to hear about this initiative and uh, wish you Thank every you. luck for future Tech for Good Awards and hope that you get a lot more publicity, both for all of these startups doing great things, but also just for these awards because, you know, 
we know how getting momentum behind these ideas is really important. Um, people can find out more at fishburners.org. It's a very memorable URL, so um, get out there and have a look at it. We've been speaking to Fishburners CEO, Alan Jones, not that Alan Jones, the important one. Um, <laughs> Alan, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Triple R. Hey, uh, it's very loosely related to tech, but a lot of tech workers, you know, Patagonia is the active wear of choice. And we couldn't miss the news this week. The Patagonia founder, Yvonne um, Chuniard, who's 83, is giving away his $3 billion company. He and his family have decided that they wanted to transfer their voting shares, 2% of the company, to a trust, which is overseen by the family and advisors to make important company decisions. And the other 98% of the company is going to the Holdfast Collective, a non-profit that will distribute all profits, $100 million annually of them, to environmental causes. Big clap to Patagonia founders and family and um, very inspiring. I think even more tech workers will be wearing your gear. So a few opportunities and events to close the show. Joe, We have the Y Awards, WAI Awards, 2023 Asia Pacific, now open for entry. Women in AI is a global network of female experts and professionals working in AI and they're aiming to make the sector more gender inclusive and to educate and inspire the next generation of female leaders. We will tweet out the link to that. Yeah, we will. And also in events, Melbourne Webfest is coming up again. It's running from September 30th to October the 2nd this year. It is their ninth festival and it celebrates storytelling and creative entrepreneurs. Over the course of three days, you can check out a bunch of digital series in entertainment from around the world. They've just announced their official selections at melbournewebfest.com. Hey, thank you to our guests this evening. We spoke to Dr. Arash Shagagi and Alan Jones. They were from the Uni of New South Wales uh, cybersecurity area and from Fishburners Startup Community up in Sydney, respectively. Thanks to my fellow host tonight, Joe. Always nice to sit here with you. It's so good when you're choosing the tunes. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, and podcaster, Carrie Smythe. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Keep well. Please subscribe. RRR.org.au. Love your work. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 